If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. We already talked about last week and joked that uh, church growth plans do not have preaching through the book of Ezekiel high on their list. So um, sing some hymns, preach through Ezekiel. It's going to explode. And again, the idea is that uh, this is, we wanted to look at this book as, um, you know, sometimes we kind of we look at God from behind the glass, like we might look at a tiger in the zoo, and we might get up to the glass, and we might even yawn, you know? Like if, we, if it's been a long day at the zoo, you come to the lion enclosure, the tiger enclosure, like, all right, I'm ready to go home. You know, and we don't want to do that with God. We want to look at God. We want to, like Ezekiel, Ezekiel had this opportunity um, at this irrigation ditch outside of Babylon at the Kabar Canal at this refugee camp to have this vision of God, that ultimately changed his life, that changed his vocation, that changed everything about him and the direction that he was going to go. And we have to remember that when, when we encounter God, like it does something to us. We don't just sit back and yawn. It does something to us. And, and in some ways, taking a look at this book is an invitation to see God afresh and anew that he is not tame, that there is a wildness about God and that sometimes God does things that we wouldn't do if we were him. But it's not up to us to tell God what to do. It's us, up to us to sit at his feet and bow at his glory and, and hear afresh what God is doing and saying. So Ezekiel chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And however you're looking at God's word, whether it's on your, your phone, on an app, or whether it's in your Bible or a Bible, one of the pew Bibles, if you would, or on the screen behind me, if you would, once you find Ezekiel chapter 6, let's stand together in honor of God and his word. Ezekiel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys, behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you. And I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken. I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before them. And I will scatter your bones around. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined. So it will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken down and destroyed. Your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out, and the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they, carry, where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, go whoring after idols, and they will be loathsome in their sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would, let, that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord, God, clap your hands and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. He who is left and is preserved shall die of famine, and I will spread my fury upon them. 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. When their slain lie at their altars, around their altars, around their idols, even on every high hill, on all the mountains, under every green tree and every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols, and I will stretch out my hand against them and make their land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places. From the wilderness of Riblah, they will know that I am the Lord. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. Well, one of the things about preaching through Ezekiel is that if you come to visit or if you come week after week, you're like, the pastor's always angry. The pastor's always reading these passages that are very angry. And and again, as we remember that we've reached, remember our our phrase that we have kind of been leaning on in this is you don't get to choose where in the story you're born. We didn't get to choose, we didn't get to choose that we were going to be born during a time of pandemic, right? And that all the COVID-19 stuff, and, and this is going to be one of those, those things throughout your life, your, your young life, or whether you've been around for a long time, one of those questions about where were you in 2020? What were you doing in 2020? You're like, yeah, I lost my second grade year in, pre, in, in, in school, or I, lo- I wasn't able to graduate, or something was taken away, and this is going to be one of those moments. We don't get to choose where we're born into the story. And like Ezekiel, Ezekiel is born into the story not at the ascent of the nation of Israel, not even at the peak of the nation of Israel's life, not even during the descent of the nation of Israel, but Ezekiel is born into the very rock bottom of the story. He's the last prophet to preach woe. He will also be the first prophet to preach and hope. But what we have here in the book of Ezekiel is simply at a low point in the nation of Israel. And two of the things in this passage, as we read this passage, particularly this week, two things that feel that probably feel fairly foreign to us. And, and if, if you're like me and you read this passage, there's two things that stand out as, as just sticking out in our culture today, in our, in our culture today, in our world today, as we encounter the news and as we encounter the kind of the, the prevailing thought of our, of our day, there's two things that stand out that feel foreign to us. First, and, and, and I'll talk about both of these, one more than the other today, but the first thing that stands out, if you, haven't, if you didn't catch it, okay, is just judgment. Judgment language. It's, it's foreign in our world today to talk about judgment, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but the second thing and what I want to focus mostly on is the, is the idea of idolatry, idolatry. Like, both of these things, judgment and idolatry, these two words, if you were to speak them out on a street corner or in, or in a public setting, they will probably feel like relics of a bygone era. Like, they feel like archaic words in a modern world. Does this make sense? Judgment and idolatry. If you were, if you were to bring those things up at, like, Thanksgiving dinner, right? Like people would, like maybe family members would be like, it just doesn't sound like the sort of things. We're in the world of iPhones and computers and the internet and TikTok and, and Instagram and social media. Maybe you're not in the world of TikTok and that's okay. No judgment there. Their judgment will come. I'm just, okay. All right. But all this to say, judgment and idolatry, they both feel a little out of place in our culture. So when we come to a passage like this, when we come to Ezekiel, one of the things that we need to do is we kind of need to figure out what has brought us to this point in the book of Ezekiel. 
And let me just say this. We're, we're going to talk today. We were talking beforehand. Um, Connor was like, so what are we talking about today, Pastor Craig? And I said, well, we're talking about idolatry. We're talking about idolatry. So the bulk of what I want to talk about is idolatry. And this will not be the last sermon in Ezekiel that focuses on idolatry. I do think that there are some things that we need to kind of take stock of in our lives, in our, in our world today, not just in our broader world, but even in our own lives about idolatry. But I want to just say something quickly about judgment. And we will have, we'll have a week, we'll have a Sunday where I talk about the idea of judgment, God's anger and God's wrath, and where does that come from and what do we do with that? But we've been skirting the topic of God's judgment so far in the book. God shows up in, in thunder and lightning and a dust cloud out of the north as Ezekiel has this vision of God that puts him on his face, right? And, and in this, the, the, that you're going to be a prophet, you are a priest, you're going to be a prophet, and you're going to preach, you're going to give this, pro, you're going to be a prophet of woe and doom because judgment is coming. And one of the things that Ezekiel is born into is that he is going to be a prophet of judgment. We've kind of skirted this so far, we've talked about, even last week as I was laying on the floor bound and with a meat cleaver in my hand, right, and a, and a frying pan, like we, we mentioned that this is what Ezekiel is doing and this is his message, but the question of what do we do with judgment? And just before we get into idolatry, I just want to say something quickly about judgment, that we live in a culture and time when the idea of God bearing his arm in judgment is not an idea that many people embrace, and it may even find us in a place of unease as we consider this theme of judgment in the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to spend some time later digging into this. But in the scope of, just let me say this, uh, because many people who, who, might be, who might have grown up in the church and are abandoning the church, one of the things is just what do we do with this idea that God is angry or God has judgment? Or when I read a passage like this, what do I do with God's judgment? What do I do when God bears his arm in judgment? And I just want to say this, Ezekiel is not the norm of the activity of God in this world. We, we picked it out because we wanted to have a kind of a fresh look at, at what God is doing, but in the scope of the biblical story and narrative, God is primarily, overwhelmingly slow to anger, abounding in patience and steadfast love. That God is gracious and merciful more than anything else that we see in the Bible. God is abounding in love. And there are points along the way where God's graciousness runs out. And Ezekiel is one of those places. So just as we think about this idea, God is primarily slow to anger. Okay, and that, and so, But we've come to a point where there's a tipping point. The, the cup has filled up to a point, and now it's tipping over, and we're seeing now God um, saying, this can't go on any longer. This can't go on any longer. And so Ezekiel is a book like this, and it comes at the low point of really a 390-year slide since the building of the temple— Ezekiel is going to, and last chapter, Ezekiel lays on his side for 390 days, one day for every year that the temple has been built. And he's bearing this punishment because ever since the temple was built, what we find is that the nation of Israel has struggled with one thing, well, a couple of things, but one thing that's led to a number of other things, and that is the idea of idolatry, having other gods besides the one God, the one true God, Yahweh, 
And Ezekiel is the last emissary, the last prophet of woe. God sends many of his emissaries to warn the people, and Ezekiel is the last one before this happens. And so the question that we have is, we, we, we recognize judgment, and we read these passages, and some of it, I mean, if, when we read these passages, maybe we cringe a little bit. We're like, man, God is angry. But we ask this question, why all this woe? Why? How have we gotten here? And this is really, this chapter in Ezekiel, we've heard a lot about what Ezekiel is supposed to say, but we have not heard a lot from God through Ezekiel about why have we gotten to this place. This is the first chapter in Ezekiel where we start to ask the question, why are we here? How did we get here? And the answer that we've already alluded to and said, the answer is idolatry. And so if you look in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. And so one of the things just to start out with is Ezekiel, as they're in this refugee camp in Babylon, and Babylon, just in case you ever go to Iraq, modern day Iraq, um, Baghdad, Babylon, um, it's flat. It's a river valley, right? The, 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 the Euphrates River runs through there, and it's very flat. And so one of the things that Ezekiel is doing here in this refugee camp, he's saying, hey, I have to say something to the mountains of Israel. And, and if, if you read your Old Testament, what you find is that there's times when the nation of Israel kind of um, comes, you got the promised land, and then it kind of expands and contracts, expands and contracts, and there's, it gains land north and south or east or west. But ultimately, the heart of Israel is the central mountain range in which Jerusalem is on. The central mountain range, kind of southern Judah, going north, there's kind of a mountain range, and it provides some degree of protection for the nation of Israel. And if you were in a refugee camp and you were kind of holding out hope that God was going to preserve Israel, surely, maybe we'll lose the Negev in the south, the desert, okay? We don't need it anyway. Maybe we'll lose the north, okay, that's fine too. And everything that's desert, and the Philistines live over there, you know, it's all, but, but the mountains, we're going to hang on to the mountains. And Ezekiel is saying, no, the core, the heart is, ultimately everything's going down. God is going to wipe this off. And the situation is that the nation of Israel has participated in idolatry. And idolatry, like I said, is this kind of archaic word. If you were to bring it up somewhere, someone might say idolatry, especially we, we live, just so you guys know, we live Someone's getting texts. It's okay. Tell them I'm preaching. It's all good. Man, this is good. There's a lot of action going on. Must be a group text. You ever get on one of those? You're like, I got to get out of this thing. Okay. All right. There you go. But idolatry, this, this idea in, in a religiously pluralistic society, okay? We live in the United States of America that was founded on the idea of religious freedom, right? Which makes this place a religiously pluralistic society, that it's not illegal to worship any one thing or another. And so to live in a public setting with public discourse and to talk about idolatry feels very foreign, not only just in this day and age, but in our, in our world, in our, in our country. And, you know, the idea that who is to say anything or el- any one thing or another is, is an idol or idolatry, except if you watch American Idol, which, of course, 
you know, American Idol, that's a positive, you want to become an idol, right? That we've lost some of the terminology with this. And also, in a scientifically modern society, right? Trust the science, right? Okay, that in a scientifically modern society, that the idea of bowing down before wood or stone in order to change the events of the cosmos to ensure military victory or a good harvest would seem like leaving things to chance or luck, like we're a scientific society. We, we're modern, and so any talk about idolatry seems foreign. Does it not to you? Like if you talk about idolatry, maybe because you've been in church, you're like, yeah, we gotta watch out for idols, but in our culture, the idea of idolatry seems a little foreign. And so to me, even as I was thinking about this, it's hard to understand exactly what's going on with the nation of Israel and how exactly they are idolatrous. How have they forsaken Yahweh? How have they done this? So in order to understand the situation back then and what's going on, and even our situations today, we need to get kind of in the wayback machine and understand what's going on, okay? We need to kind of paint the picture of what's happening in that world. And so back last week, we talked about in, in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, God initiates, he says, Moses, come up here. I want to make, make a contract with you, right? What did we call that contract? A covenant, okay? The Hebrew word's a berit. It's like, it's this treaty. It's like this political treaty between the greater king and the lesser people. And the idea would be, look, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to love you. You're going to, I'm going to, you're going to be my beloved. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring rain so your crops will grow. I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to, I'm going to help you because I love you. I am going to be your king. Really what Yahweh says is, I want to be your husband. I, I want to watch over you like a husband watches over his wife. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And you're going to be my people. And so you're, what, what I want from you, there's a few things I want from you. And God starts out in Exodus 19 saying, well, here's the first four. The first one is, is what? No other gods before me. I am your God. No, no graven images of me. Don't try to make a picture of me. Which is interesting because even in the Old Testament, in the prophets, Israel doesn't really have a problem trying to make an image of Yahweh. You don't really see any prophets railing against, you have all these graven images. No, they don't. They just say, you have idols. Then the third thing is, look, um, don't take my name in vain. Don't do things in my name that you ought not do. Like, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't say, Let, thus saith the Lord, and I'm not saying that. Like, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. And then take a day and worship me. Those are the first four commandments, Right? So as God says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to love you, I'm going to take care of you, I just need you to do a few things. And I also need to treat you to treat each other well. But let's start with this idea that I am your God. And, and Moses, on the eve of going back, going into the promised land, or sending the people of God into the promised land, Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, the verse, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the one, one thing that every Jew even today says every day, a daily prayer, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that is, that's an app, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God says, so Moses says, look, we need to re-up on the covenant, on the promise, on the compact, on the treaty. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God, one, 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 one. So as we even think about where we're at with Ezekiel, we rewind and we get back to this original, this original 
treaty, this original compact, this original covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. How many of me are there? There is one. And there's some rules about how you talk about me and how you present me. But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the people of Yahweh will have some issues along the way. And then God will send his prophets to reorient them. Like when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he's got the Ten Commandments uh, and he comes out and they have the golden calf. And then Moses reorients them back to, no, Yahweh, that's who we worship. You only had enough gold for a small bowl, you couldn't even make a big one, right? Like, don't try to do this. And then um, the ba- uh, in Numbers 25, Baal of Peor, and they, they, they worship these other gods, and God sends Phineas, right? Or like um, Jezebel and Ahab, they set up Baal worship in Israel. This is after the temple has been there for a while, and God sends Elijah, right? And, and he reorients the people away from their idols and back towards Yahweh. And so there are, in this passage, there really are two expressions of idolatry in, 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 in Ezekiel 6.1. So back in 6.2, Son of Man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel, prophesy against them. And then he says in verse 3, Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you to destroy your high places. Okay? The first clue that we're talking about idolatry here, obviously later on he's going to talk about um, in 6.4, your altars shall become desolate, your incense altars shall be broken down, I will cast down your slain before your idols. Okay? So this idea of the high places, so here, this is the idea of the high places. When the nation of Israel was coming into the land, there was no temple, they had a tabernacle, they had God in a tent, right? Porta, porta, porta God. He was, he was portable, you could take him anywhere, you could set up the Ark of the Covenant, you could set up the, the, the tent, you could set up the tabernacle, um, and until they had that uh, codified in the temple in Jerusalem, until then, they had distributed places of worship. In 1 Kings, it was allowed. Wherever your tribe was, you could have a local place where you would worship Yahweh. This was until the temple was built. And where you would, what you would do is you would build this platform, whether it was on top of a hill or whether it was down in a valley, whatever it was, it was called a high place. And these high places were high because it would be this platform that would be maybe about five or six feet high, maybe, maybe even higher than that, that you could walk up to. And then on top of that platform, you would have a little altar set up. And on that altar, you, as a faithful Israelite, person of God, part of the people of God, you would go up there and you would offer your sacrifices that you would give. So you maybe would, would go up there and you would have an, a, an animal sacrifice or you would bring a grain offering or you would offer incense from that place. And that was all fine. That was all good. That was allowed until the temple was built. And once the temple was built, you had this, there was a, it was like, okay, no more high places. What we need to do is we need to come to the temple where we have, we have official priests who oversee this worship, make sure it's right, it's good, it's pure. You come to the temple, you bring your tithes to the temple, we bring all the priests to the temple, you take care of the, the priests up there, you do your worship at the temple. And what we find is that this idea of the high places, once the temple is completed, the old ways, the convenient locations, 
the flexible rules were hard to give up. And so this idea, I lived up in uh, Galilee, and it was 100 miles down to Jerusalem, and it was like, well, do I go to the festival down there, or do I just do my worship up here? Do I find a, a place, like these high places, like 1 Kings chapter 3 said, we could do it at a high place, even though the temple's down there. And so maybe I would go, I would go to this high place, lax rules, or also like people that travel through the country, they don't go and worship. They might have their foreign gods and they're looking for places to go. They find these altars. And so I'm worshiping Yahweh, but there's somebody next to me that's worshiping Baal. Someone else is worshiping Asherah. And so you have this like, okay, we have this mixed worship going on in these high places. It's not so bad, is it? And then maybe like I come, there's a drought and I'm like, gosh, I really need, I really need rain. I'm going to pray to Yahweh, but I'm going to go up to this high place. But as I'm going up to this high place, there's this other person, they're worshiping Asherah, and she's the goddess of, she's the goddess of fertility, or Baal, he's the god of, of, of the storm. And so maybe I, like, maybe I should cover my bases. I know Yahweh's the one true God, but Baal, he's the god of the storm, and I need rain. And so this idea that the high places, they they deteriorate over time as a place that were originally built for people locally to worship Yahweh, now worship is centralized in the temple, and now these high places are a place of whether it's exchanging Yahweh for other gods or bringing other gods alongside Yahweh. Over the years, over these 390 years of the temple, the high places become a real place problem in the nation of Israel. And those two gods that I mentioned, Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah. Baal was the god of storm, the god of thunder, the god, sounds like a, a marvel, right? Uh, the, the god, it, Baal was the god of power. Like if you wanted military victory, you go to the god of thunder, lightning, and rain. If you wanted, if you want rain, you're a farmer, you want rain, you go to, the, you go to Baal. Baal was very much someone that that you would, if the things that Baal had you wanted, especially if you were a farmer or you were in danger of being invaded. Asherah was the goddess of fertility. So whether you were a farmer and you needed good crops or you were a young woman who wanted to get pregnant, like I'll, I'll pray to Yahweh, but hey, I'll also, I'm going to cover my bases too with, with Asherah. So this idea of family, fertility, young, You might simply cover your bases. Yahweh's in Jerusalem, but while I'm at home, I might just shoot up a prayer to all three. And what we find is that for Yahweh, and even as we, as we kind of think about this, we might think, well, this is obvious. Like, we're, we're kind of Monday morning quarterbacking, right? Like, this is a long time ago. We hear the story. God's been faithful. And why can't these people be faithful too? And what we find out about Yahweh, look at um, Ezekiel 6, 8, is that Yahweh, as we talked about with this covenant, he's not, I will be your God, you will be my people, but he also fashions himself as, I will be your husband and you will be my spouse. Ezekiel 6, 8, I will leave some of you alive when you among the nations, some escape the sword when you're scattered through the countries then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they're carried, how I have been broken over their, well, the ESV says over their whoring heart. The ESV does not pull any punches. If you're reading from the ESV, 
it will say your whoring hearts. But the idea is that Yahweh is saying, they will recognize that I am a broken-hearted God. You have broken my heart to you. This was intended to be an exclusive relationship. And though you might feel broken in this moment, people of God during the time of Ezekiel, but I have been broken for hundreds of years. My heart has been broken. The ESV says whoring hearts and whoring eyes. The NIV says adulterous hearts and eyes that lust after idols. The New Revised Standard says wanton hearts and eyes, eyes that are just looking for excess. The, uh, the Common English Bible says roving hearts and roving eyes, married to Yahweh, but constantly looking for something better, something more. You know, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation with the, the church in Ephesus, it says, um, I just hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. And in many ways, when we talk about idolatry, it's this idea of something else comes crowding in in what is intended to be an exclusive relationship with our God. Something else comes in. And I think to this idea that idolatry, when I think about idolatry, I hear the word idolatry. I don't know what comes up in your mind with idolatry, but I think of like little figurines like stone or, or, or uh, wood-carved figurines that people are bowing down before. And I think in the ancient world, that might have been what it is. But if we think about why people, why people prayed to idols or had idols or had them in their homes or had them at the high places or things like that, um, if we think about why they have these, it might be more helpful as we think of bridging that gap of the why of idolatry. And if we think about this, that idols, idols are the things that our hearts truly worship and depend on. In other words, idols back in that day, Baal and Ashereth, they might not have been the covenant gods, but they were, they were being set up as the functional saviors of the people of God. They're like, okay, maybe you can trust Yahweh, but you probably need to cover your bases. Like, maybe Baal can help you. Maybe Ashereth can help you. A functional savior. And I think as we, just as I was thinking about this passage this week, and I'm thinking about idolatry, I'm asking questions to myself such as, Craig, what are you looking at as your functional savior in this world? Because I would imagine if you're like me, you're like, no, I, I love Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. I trust Jesus. But when we think about idols, idols are the things that creep into this exclusive relationship as functional saviors. Like, I love Jesus, but I wonder if he's going to come through for me. Maybe I ought to do this instead or in a conjunction. What am I looking to as a functional savior? You think about this idea of idols are the things that we truly worship and depend on. If I, if I, need, if I need power, if I, if I feel powerless and I need power, if I need saving, if I need, if I need a job, if I need income, if I need protection, what do I look to as a functional savior? 
And I think just this, we're going we're gonna to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning in just a bit, but when we do this, what I want to encourage you to do is I, I simply want to ask you, what do you feel like you've been relying on as your functional Savior? And this is not, again, look, if, you worship, if you're worshiping another God, if you're worshiping, like if you're practicing a different religion, I would just say, repent. Like you're face this way, away from God, turn toward him, right? And, and we're going to see that there's actually, in our next chapter, that there are people who are worshiping the sun. And when in the, in the temple, the temple opens up facing east, and God is in the temple, and people who worship the sun, when the sun came up, they would, they would literally, if, if, if God was this way, the sun was coming up here, they would literally turn their back on God and worship the sun, right? And in that case, the call is to repent, turn 180 degrees and reorient. But the nature of idols, the nature of idols is not always a 100, you're not always turned 180 degrees off. That you might just be like, look, I love Jesus, but right now I am really struggling with trusting my 401k instead of Jesus. And the call, look, the call is to, again, to reorient, to turn. It might not be turning 180 degrees, you might not be off that far, but the call is to turn. Or you might be like, I, I, I'm, I'm, trusting, I'm trusting this other person, I, I love Jesus, but I really need this relationship with this other person to come through. Like, I really need that. And the call might not be, look, it might not be turn 180 degrees, it's just, look, you need to reorient, you need to, God, you have an exclusive relationship with your God. He loves you, and he will take care of you. Come whatever may, whatever may come, reorient to that. And I think when we think about idols, modern idols, because I would say probably you don't, have, you don't have a statuette in your house, okay? But you might have an app on your phone. Like, you might not have a stone table where you offer up incense, but you might follow someone on social media, you might not have, you know, in, in your house, a high place out in your backyard. You built this little, you might not have that, but you have your TV set. You've got your screens. You've got various things in your life that you go to. Like me, we live in a culture like, I, I, the one thing, the two places where either idolatry doesn't, like it's hard to imagine idolatry, either because it's so foreign to me, or because I'm so surrounded by it. Like if you ask a fish, hey, can you describe what water is like? The fish, well, the fish can't talk, but I, just for the sake of um, the analogy, right? The fish lives in water, doesn't, like, doesn't know anything else besides its life in water. And if you said to the fish, you're surrounded by water, they're like, I'm not surrounded by water, I'm just living life. And idolatry is only, it only is, is hard for us to understand either because it's completely foreign, it's totally out of our lives, or because we're completely surrounded by it. You don't think that the nation of Israel is like, we want to be idolaters. You know, the one thing we've been really trying to do over these last 390 years is be idolaters. No. They're like, we want to love Yahweh, but we also want good crops, and we also want healthy families. 
And those things are all good. You think about idols, and idols, here are the three things, I think, as we think about this, we begin this process of reflection, and this is a process that's not, look, the book of Ezekiel is long, and so we're going to have a couple of weeks where we reflect on this. Because idols, I I would actually argue that I think that idols are all around us. There's so many things in our life that will take us off one or two degrees. It's almost like the, the devil was like, I don't need one big idol, I need thousands of little ones. And if I can get thousands of little ones, then maybe, a, maybe if I get, a, and someone grabs 20 or 30 of them, that'll at least get them off. If I just surround everybody with idolatry, maybe that will help. And think about these three things. Where do you find these three things? Your significance, your security, and your satisfaction. We think of Baal and Asherah. These three things, your significance, your like career, your role in life, your vocation, your talent, your impact, your influence. Like if I just have influence, if I could just be more influential, if I can just have a good career, like those sort of things. And again, these things are not bad, but the idea is, the idea is God will take care of those things. God will take care of your significance. There are a thousand things that can come rushing into that, that will move you off by degrees. Where do you find your security? Maybe it's your financial resources, your job your 401k, your investments, your real estate, your home. Maybe it's a relationship, someone that makes you feel safe. Maybe it's just human approval that you, all, you need approval from other people. Where do you find your security? Again, these things are not bad things, but to be sure, the call as followers of Jesus is to look to Jesus for these things. And to bring those things under the lordship of Jesus. Where do you find your satisfaction? Your standard of living? Food and drink? Maybe sex? Entertainment? Where does your mind go when it has nothing else to think about? And again... This might be, these things might be completely crowding in, or maybe it's just a couple of things off. What I've found is that every once in a while, I've got to do a diagnostic. I've got to figure out if I'm doing okay. If, 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 the, if God, if, if I am in an exclusive worship relationship with God, and it's good to do a diagnostic. We're going to take a couple, a couple of weeks where we're going to talk and go a little bit more in depth about idolatry, but today is simply a chance to begin to ask this question. I would just say this, like, I'm preaching to myself. I feel like I am surrounded. I'm in a world where there are things that are competing for my allegiance. They're competing for my trust. I mean, just wa- look, the other way you can figure out what, idol- what idols are in culture, just watch the commercials at football games today. Just look at the commercials you'll quickly pick out what the idols are. Watch the commercials at a golf tournament on TV. Watch the commercials when you're watching Dancing with the Stars or whatever. I don't know what you're watching, and I don't, there's no judgment anywhere on anything. 
for that matter. Maybe there is, but it's not for me. God will judge you. Um, okay, all right. All, you guys, all right, how do I pull out of the nosedive here? Okay, the idea is just watch the things that are being sold, what industries are making the most money in our culture. It's not hard to figure out what the idols are. And to ask ourselves every once in a while, am I getting sucked in to a place where Jesus is not? Or am I letting something else infiltrate my life with Jesus? It's a fair question. Especially in light that the people of God in Ezekiel did not set out to be idolaters. These were things that snuck in over time. So, I don't, I, the goal is not to make you feel guilty or to shame anybody. The goal is as a diagnostic. Where are we at? Because look, at Taft Avenue Community Church, we want Jesus front and center. We don't want Jesus on the outside looking in. We don't want Jesus knocking on the door saying, hey, do you mind if I come in? We want Jesus here. We want, Jesus, we want to worship Jesus. We want to come to Jesus. And we understand that we live in a world that is constantly trying to move us off of that. And that's why we're here. We're here simply to help each other follow Jesus with whole hearts, not divided hearts or hard hearts. We are coming to love Jesus.